Welcome to Screen Cleaning, the show on BYU Radio, where we try to shine a spotlight on all that is good in the entertainment world. My name's Cole Wissinger. And I'm Rod Gustafson, joining Hi, Rod. Cole. Hi. Jeff is on a little vacation this week. We gave him the week off because, you know, there's plenty going on in the world. He's going to spend some time with his family and... We always love having Rod on the show, and so it's a, it's a win-win-win. Everyone gets to um, enjoy themselves. <laughs> and I really like being here on this show. This is – I just – this is that show where you can just explore all those things that you like that are on a screen. TV, movies, video, video games, games we're going to yep. mention today. Yep. We don't get – see, Jeff leaves for one week, and I finally get to rant about video games with Rod <laughs> Gustafson. There but you go. But the, the big news, as we always do, we start with the best of entertainment news of the week. And we try to keep it movie-focused first. And to be honest, there hasn't been a ton of movie mm. news during yep. COVID because theaters have been shut down, and we still don't know, know when we're going to get movies again. For now, though, we are still getting some trailers. For example, the Bill and Ted Face the Music, Bill and Ted 3. They're back after, gosh, almost 30 years, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, and we got a new trailer this week. Yeah, and watching that trailer, Cole, I... It, they sound... Uh, I'm glad this hasn't happened to me in 30 years because they sound <laughs> old. Well, and you know yeah. it was that was kind of I'm thinking oh, really I I'm excited about watching it because okay Bill and Ted when it first came out I thought oh this is such a stupid movie I remember back in the 80s when oh, it, it came out Oh it still is But then my it hasn't kids changed. well then my kids started falling in love with it like 15 years after it released and then I started thinking okay so this is kind of funny I'm just a little bit thinking I'm too smart for Bill and Ted so I'm looking a little forward to this new one I hope it I hope they can recapture that And they kept it ambiguous because right at the end of a trailer it always says coming to theaters near you <laughs> Yeah. Date. Well, this is coming to theaters near you in summer mm-hmm. of 2020. Yes. <laughs> and that's because the movies. studio has no idea no. when that movie is going to be None able to whatsoever. find a screen to show We're it We're getting on. closer. We creep closer each week to mm-hmm. July 1st, which is mm-hmm. when that Russell Crowe movie that I can never remember the title for is technically mm-hmm. yeah. supposed to be the first one back in theaters. Who knows if theaters will even open and it'll be worth it for them to like staff to get anyone yeah. in the theater for that one. But then Tenant is coming shortly thereafter. Wonder Woman and Mulan and everything's kind of... Looking at Tenant, you can mm-hmm. look back in our screen cleaning archive, Jeff and I's conversation about Christopher Nolan movies and, and what the future of movies could yeah. be, if you're curious on our thoughts on that. Yeah. But there's other it, news. There's other news out there, Rod. Yeah, there is. Well, talking about on the same on this same topic, like I was looking at Box Office Mojo earlier this weekend, and you can just see the, the decline, the the day that the world changed where all of a sudden the theaters went empty and there's a couple of weeks in there where total grosses are in the hundreds of dollars. Usually, you know, for people who don't follow box office, usually grosses are like millions of dollars per week. Per week. Oh, yeah. Millions and of dollars per movie. Per sometimes. movie. Yeah, exactly. And so looking at this, but it is starting to ramp back up. It's in the hundreds of thousands now, just barely. And uh, so, I mean, who knows as we're recording this, we're hearing about states, including the one we're in right now, where the, the, the rates for COVID are ramping back up again. So who knows what the future is? And that's how come I think the studios are really, they are having to work deals 
quickly and dynamically like they never have before. And so here's an example of one, a Tom Hanks movie. I mean, a Tom Hanks movie isn't a throwaway movie. This would have been, and, and I can tell this is one expensive film. This is called Greyhound, and it's one of my favorite movie genres, Cole. It's a submarine movie. I just love oh. sub-movies. See, I thought it was going to be Boy and His Dog movie based on the name yeah. Greyhound. Yeah, right? no, exactly. Maybe Turner yeah, and Hooch no. sequel. <laughs> <laughs> this is inspired by true events from a big battle in World War II that okay. I really don't know enough about. And it is based on a novel, though, so this is not exactly a, you know, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of historical inaccuracies in this, but yeah. I bet it's going to be great as Tom Hanks, who's a captain of the submarine and a of course, everything's going to go wrong. Now, this was originally a Sony property, and they had a release date set for May. And that didn't work out. So they sold it to Apple. I, you know, I'd love to hear how these deals go, go. You know, hey, we got this Tom Hanks movie. And like, oh, we don't know what to do with it. So, so it's going to be on Apple TV Plus July 10th is the premiere. And it makes sense that Apple TV Plus is kind of jumping at it because mm-hmm. they – more so than any of the other they need streamings, stuff. they they need con. They're hurting. They need stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I, uh, I I'm looking forward to watching this. This would motivate me to try out Apple TV Plus for a few months on on this alone. So I think that this could be really interesting. But I, I you know, here we are in this day where big properties like this would have been. The big Memorial Day, this would have had the big Memorial oh, Day yeah. release and everything else. This would have been a uh, a key tentpole movie for Sony this year. Would have, could have, should have. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, this makes me think back to when I was in high school and I would be in a group project and not contribute a ton and then put my name on it at the last minute. <laughs> you, you see all these like Netflix originals that have the big red N in the corner, uh-huh. but really all they did was purchase it at the uh-huh. 11th hour. And yeah. here Apple TV Plus gets to say, hey, this is one of our originals yeah. Yeah. that we just kind of bought because they didn't want to put it out. And of course, the other thing you're going to be wondering too now is are the people at Sony, like everybody's got a streaming network, but no, not everybody does. Sony doesn't really have a home to call their own. And so it, again, I think there's going to be a huge uh, push on all of these content creators to start wondering, like, how are they going to work this? Do they make enough money licensing to somebody else like Apple? Maybe there's a partnership in the future between Apple and Sony. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But uh, you can bet that this is going to create some business deals we never thought of before. And and Sony, we we start talking about the silos that we become aware of, that who knew that AT&T was actually Mm -hmm. in cahoots with Turner and HBO and WB until they came out with HBO Max and Mm -hmm. you realize, hey, if you got a certain AT&T phone subscription, yes. turns out you just got HBO, you get HBO Max. Max. Or, you know, the Peacock is coming out and turns out if you had Comcast Internet, you've had access to the Peacock for the past month before yep. anyone else. And so Sony, it is possible. Sony has other interests in addition to oh, movies. Yeah. They're, of course, I think their big property is Spider-Man. They still mm-hmm. own the rights to that and they've mm-hmm. been creating their own Spider-Verse. Yes. Um, but Sony is also invested in the video game market. And just this week, we got fresh looks at the PlayStation 5, Five. the next generation <laughs> of console. And it is, okay, open disclosure, I'm not a video game person, <laughs> but I love the technology. In fact, 
I I remember this is going to seriously date me, but I That's I went okay. out and bought the Intellivision in like 1981, 82 because I just wanted a video game system so badly because I thought the tech was so cool, and but then as I started playing video games through the 80s, I thought I, these are kind of boring, and I've come back and to it a couple work. of times, and I don't know what it is with me, Cole. Maybe I'm just lazy and I want the story presented to me on the screen without me having to work through 20 different layers to get to it, <laughs> but um, but I love the tech. And oh, when the you hardware look at inside this. of it is absolutely fascinating. I have it a is. friend who has never played a video game in his life, but he owns an Xbox One because that's oh, his... That's his baby. That, well, that's <laughs> his like, uh, entertainment thing. Uh-huh. Like instead yes. of having a Roku or a smart it, yeah. TV, yeah, and it streams and everything. Yeah, through the Xbox. Yeah, well, and when Sony's PlayStation, if I've got this right, I think... I think it was the PlayStation 3 came out. It came with the built-in Blu-ray player, which oh, at that the, time... it was PlayStation 2. That was 2, wasn't it? It was yes. one of the first And for like to 80 bucks more than a Blu-ray player, mm-hmm. you got a PS2. And yeah. Sony played that. That was a real good deal for them. So the new PS5, they had a big event on this past week where they showed off some of the new software on this platform. And the games, I say software games, but the rendering is incredible. Like we are getting to the point where you wonder, is Hollywood still going to need actors one day? Are we just going to find the right person and do a 3D scan and pay them a licensing fee for their image Motion and then we can do whatever we bit, want with and them? Then, yeah. yeah, you can make the bodies do yeah. it. There was better computer graphics engineering on the, the NBA 2K21, like the new basketball mm-hmm. video mm-hmm. game. Than we saw in uh, the movie that mm-hmm. you and I saw that we're going to get to talk about yeah. in a couple of Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And not to leave Microsoft out of this as well, but they've got a big one coming out too. It's called the Xbox X. There you go. There's a mouthful. And See, PlayStation, uh, they've, num- they've gone PlayStation, yes. then 2, 3, 4, 5. Yeah. Xbox went from Xbox to Xbox 360 to Xbox yeah. one, 1 to Xbox One S, which yes. is kind of like that phone. Like it's not really a next generation, but it's kind of one in between. And then they have an. Microsoft is never been very good at numbering things. I mean, even with Windows 2, they were just all over the place with these weird different names. And then ME, ME, and yeah, and 2000, suddenly we're back and forth. XP, and and then they started numbering, now we're at 10 or 12. So I find it. But I wonder, Cole. Okay, Cole, you're younger than me, but do you think you'll see the PlayStation 21 one day? (laughs) Who knows? I mean, it'll start getting awkward. I mean, we're already at the point where iPhones, the numbers are pretty high. Mm -hmm. If you just keep coming out with one every year... Mm -hmm. It's going to be weird when there's oh, yeah. an iPhone 50. It's like now I that's know. what I call music volume 104 that we're on right now. <laughs> yes. But you, and when the iPhone finally reaches 40 and has a midlife crisis, I mean, who knows what <laughs> we'll do. By the way, that, that new Xbox, too, the other thing that's happening with it. So the Sony will play in 4K. The Xbox does 8K. And there's, I don't I, I'm aware it. of one it, 8K consumer even... television. Samsung's got okay. one that costs a fortune. But, uh, yeah. Are there so. movies in 8K? Like, are they putting out? So they shoot in 8K, Cole. Most of the films you're seeing now are being shot in 8K. So they say oh. they've got, and maybe some of them, who knows, maybe there's even higher resolutions going on now. But they've been, in the industry, we call it acquisition. They've been acquiring in 8K, shooting it and whatnot. And then they, you know, obviously they downsample it for 1080p and for some old school folks who are still doing DVDs and that type of thing. But that gives them that option in the future to make more money because 
there's the 8K now release, release, you know, it. and, and yeah, all of that. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Do when I go to the movie theater, if we ever get back to the movie mm-hmm. theater, yeah, are I, those projections yeah. in 8K? Uh, a lot of times, in they, some of them are doing 4K, some of them are doing a thing called 2K, but in some of the bigger screens and digital IMAX and whatnot, you're looking at 8K. Right yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Things we so, learn. Incredible Rod, stuff. Rod, folks, is an industry insider. That oh, can give us- <laughs> no, I'm a nerd. I just <laughs> like the numbers and the tech more than the content some days. So. Okay. Is there any other news that we're missing before we head off to the, the review of the new movie? Yeah, I know. I, I think that. I think that's about it, except that Elon oh, – okay, can I just squeeze in one really weird thing here? Elon Musk is another nerdy thing. Yeah. I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, Gene Wilder used to – his house is across the street from Elon Musk. And, of course, Gene Wilder passed away a few years ago. Right. It's this quirky house. They were going to tear it down. Like it's got hallways that go nowhere and whatnot and, and just a lot of really weird things. It's a Willy Wonka house. The Winchester Willy Wonka Gene Wilder house. Yeah. Elon lives across the street, so he bought the house. Just because he didn't want to see it torn down, but he's decided Elon's going through this minimalist thing right now where he's shedding himself of all his worldly possessions (laughs) and I guess just sticking it in the bank. So he says he wants to get rid of a lot of his properties. He's selling the house, but the trick is that whoever buys it can't change it. So there you go. If you want, and and he says, I know this is going to hurt me on the resale. I think it's up for it's in Bel Air. I want to say it's somewhere, it's under, I believe it's under 10 million. I think it's about five or six million. Oh, well, million. if it's under Piece 10 million, Rod, my, <laughs> I might as well go so put So there a you go. And there. he says, I'm sure I'm going to lose money on it. So so that's, there you go. That's the weird, quirky news Thank for you. today. So movies haven't been coming to theaters. We've covered that, but they are finding their way to different streaming. And available today on Disney Plus is a new movie from. Originally 20th Century Fox, now just 20th Century Studios, acquired by Disney. So it's just Disney's Artemis Fowl. Mm-hmm. Rod, you and I got a chance to watch this earlier we this week, a little bit early. Um, and now we have a chance to review it for you. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Cole. You take the lead on Artemis. I would love to because I'm the one of the two of us that has read yes. two or three of the eight different books that this movie is based on. And... That's really where we have to start, and that's where we're going to get into a conversation later today about the struggles about adapting YA and juvenile fiction into a big-budget Hollywood movie. This takes most of the first book and pieces of the second, despite every press conference that we saw before the movies released (laughs) saying that it wouldn't. It does take two-ish books, condenses it to an hour and 34 minutes, which is shorter than we normally... I mean, they took the last Harry Potter book and split it into two movies. Here we're taking two books and putting it into one short-ish movie. Mm-hmm. And It is. Story, it's only it's barely over an hour and a half long. Yeah, the story, I think, gets kind of convoluted and lost in that translation. I think this is... It's one of the worst movies I've seen in quite some time. And that's speaking not just as an adaptation, but just to try to follow what's happening on screen is nigh impossible. Yeah. You know, I was, okay, I had going into this, I have not read, I have not read the books, so I really did not have a whole lot of an, of a concept of what this would be about. But you have seen a movie or two in your day. But I've seen a movie or two <laughs> in my day, and by the half hour mark, I have just totally checked out. 
I I just found like there there were there's a lot of needless characters in this. This is this is a story about a young boy. He's what twelve? Twelve? Supposed to be twelve? Twelve? Yeah, and they right. do the actor is right around that age. Yes, and he is. Yeah, and this is a story about a young boy who is um, he's supposed to be an evil criminal mastermind, which is part of the problem because we don't really see him become an evil criminal mastermind in this movie really at all. And really, by the time you get done, they introduce some additional characters. There's this, another world that's an underground world of fairies and oh, yeah. all this other oh, stuff going on. Oh, by the way, on. it's not yeah. just a criminal heist movie. It's no. actually... A yeah, fantasy fairy tale I, centaurs and I don't know like why that. I was expecting a better version of Spy Kids, and <laughs> instead I it just seems to be it was just in a blender for me. And the other problem that I had is they introduce some um, characters that you think there there's going to be a building of a relationship here because Artemis one of the big issues that they that they introduce at the beginning of the movie is he's got he's he's got this father who's just so involved in his work he has no time for his son which is you know we've seen this over and over in movies and so you're expecting at the very least by the end of this movie to have a heart-tugging if not artificial moment where you, you feel the tears welling up in your eyes and you and you feel like I'm being manipulated, they couldn't even pull that off. <laughs> so, yeah, it yeah. was surprising. There to are me. times where they kind of forget where they're going. And I think this is the adaptational dissonance that we're seeing because mm-hmm. there were so many chances to actually do what the books did. And they every opportunity they get zag away from that again you listen to interviews it wasn't it wasn't amateurs putting together this movie by the way 20th century fox is uh-huh. a big deal disney is huge kenneth Branagh is the director mm-hmm. colin firth is in the cast as well as dame judy dench and josh judy gad dench. yes poor judy dench i i i'm sure she is saying to all of her friends now right now i don't want to talk about it well, it, it, she needs to have a conversation with her agent because yeah. her last movie before this one was Cats. And mm. despite my like macabre enjoyment of that movie, it wasn't good. I'm happy to say I haven't seen it. <laughs> I've, I've got the Blu-ray sitting I'm, at my house. I'm sorry, Cole. I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> I just can't get through but, it. So Judy Dench plays this like old, grizzled police detective who is a male in the books. And I, I'm not the kind of book fan that scruffs it whenever they change like the slightest little like Harry Potter's eyes are supposed to be green and they're blue in the movies Mm. and I don't care about them whatever and even your gender swip your race flop you you can do all that stuff when you adapt that's fine if it turns out okay and they just didn't know what to do with any of the characters to Mm. be fair like Judy Dench is certainly no worse than you know, Josh Gad just introduce his framing device where he's kind of our narrator through the entire thing, playing this tall dwarf. There's no real reason for him to be the one guiding us through the story because he doesn't even show up in the book until well over halfway through. And in the movie, there's a couple of times where all of a sudden they cut back to him as the narrator sitting in this crazy, we don't know what, prison or whatever. Yes, solitary confinement. And my brain's going, oh, yeah, that's right. He was in this. You know, it's just the editing in this is just terrible. It's, yeah. Not not a great movie. But for something that if you have Disney Plus, would you even recommend spending the hour and a half 
to no, watch it. No, I I wouldn't. It, not for me, at least. I don't I mean, think I would either. And but and you've read the books. I was going to say maybe if you're really engaged into the Even books, you're less going to be curious. So but, my recommendation yeah. for people that have read the books is <laughs> to pretend that the movie never has. Similar to recommendation for other, and and that's where our conversation is going to go later on today, Rod, is to talk about some of these beloved juvenile fiction books that got good or not so good adaptations. But before we get to that. Despite our disappointment in the Artemis Fowl movie, these are still books that I do hold dear and that I enjoyed mm-hmm. when I was in I've middle school. I've heard good things about the books. And I had an awesome opportunity earlier this week as part of the press tour for the Artemis Fowl movie to speak to the author of Artemis Fowl, cool. Owen Coffer. Nice. That interview is coming up right next here on Screen Cleaning. Bill and Ted, what have you got to say for yourselves? Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. Where do you think you are? I'm the next criminal mastermind. Now look around, this is what they call greatness. I didn't read much on trolls. Anything I should look out for? The teeth. They eat people. Good to know. From the trailer to Artemis Fowl, available for streaming on Disney Plus right now. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. And before Artemis Fowl was a big-budget movie with all kinds of talented directors and actors attached to it, it was a book written by an amazingly talented author. And today we have a special treat for you. Irish author Owen Coffer is right here with us on Screen Cleaning. Welcome to the show. I, I, that's great. I was just looking at the name. It took me like five seconds to go, oh, yeah, screen cleaning. <laughs> we so, we like I'm, puns and I'm we like to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, with this adaptation, you have a whole new audience finding your stories for the very first time. And just at the onset, what would you like to say to them? Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I would uh, I would like to say, I would like to put out my stall and say I am not trying to teach you anything I just want you to have fun. There is no message. Uh, the only message uh, is the power of dreams. Sit back, enjoy, uh, and hopefully uh, after this, go away and have a read of the book. <laughs> That's what I would hope. You don't Sounds... even have to buy it. You don't even have to buy it. You can get it in your libraries. I love libraries. That sounds fair, and I like libraries too. That works. Uh, and I'll be honest with you. It was in a library that I first came across Artemis Fall when I was a younger a kid than I am today, and it, it was that gold cover that first struck me to the book, and, and it got oh, me yeah. in for the first time. The reason I get to talk to you today is because Disney Publishing, they have a new ver- movie version, so um, what what is new to this book now? They can get a, a sneak peek uh, of the movie in there, and uh, you can see pictures from the set, from behind the scenes. You can maybe, before you see the movie, you can read the book and get a little pre-taste of what's going to go on. And I think uh, while the, definitely you can see the movie and watch it and enjoy it, you certainly get a greater depth if you've read the book beforehand. You have more to discuss. You have an understanding of the characters going in, which is always very helpful. You can tell what's changed and what's the same. Uh, and you might like some of the changes. I hope you do. Uh, most of them have been discussed. So, yeah, I think it's well worth um reading the book beforehand because uh, it just connects you more. It makes it more of a personal experience. Uh, when I was younger, 
I love TV shows that you probably don't even remember, uh, stuff like Planet of the Apes, the TV show. Oh, sure. Uh, and you could get comic books of that, and you could, yeah, and it was, it was fantastic. And you could get uh, novelizations of that, and, and I collected those, and they just made me feel that that was my show. You hear that phrase a lot now, my show, this is my show, that's my show. But when you're young, when you're in your teens, uh, and you've got, you're collecting the figurines, you're collecting the books and the comics, and you're watching the show every Saturday, that's when it came out in Ireland, um, it just made it feel very personal. And I remember all I have to do is see a photograph from that time, and it just flashes me right back to what it was like um, watching that TV show on Saturday afternoon with my older brother, Paul, uh, or making the trek. In those days, you had to do a long walk down to the cinema when the Planet of the Apes movies came out, which we also loved. So, yeah, it's a way to connect you right to the core uh, of the project. I, when I was growing up, I, my parents had a wide collection of books, and uh, some of my favorites were the novelizations of current properties, so like Star Trek or Star Wars or Doctor Who books that yeah. were based on an existing show yeah, or yeah. movie. But what's the process been like yeah. going the other way, where you started as a book? What's been like one of your favorite scenes to come to life and to see on the screen? Uh, there's a, the, at the center of this book, there is a huge, what we call, time stop. Mm-hmm. So this uh, big bubble uh, is uh, erected over Fowl Manor, uh, and it just stops time. And I love that because they added so much more into that. Um, I didn't envisage that the sea would freeze you know, on a giant wave uh, <laughs> over the manor. And th- that just looks amazing. And, uh, and they have people who were half stuck in the time stop and half out of it. And, and, and the manor itself, because they didn't, uh, I suppose, one school of wisdom would be that the manor should be all CGI and there's no need to build uh, an actual manor. But Kenneth Branagh is a very traditional filmmaker and he likes the tactile effect. So he said, no, we're going to build this manor. And every room is going to be like a movie studio. So we can, by computer, set up a room for filming in very short order. And it just, I think it really adds to the whole experience of watching the movie that you feel like this is Artemis's home. He runs around it like he's known it all his life. And the young man, Ferdy, who plays Artemis, he was allowed free reign on that uh, set. And he spent a lot of time just exploring, running up and down stairs. So they know every inch and that really comes across, I think, in the movie, that this is a home that's lived in. Oh, that's wonderful. And at the core of this story, it is a fantasy story with, with the fey folk and with, you know, leprechauns, kind of. And and so what has, uh, to, yeah. to my 100%, I assume, American audience, what did your home of Ireland contribute to the genesis of this story? Everything, uh, down to the manor itself, which is based on a place called Loftus Hall in County Wexford in Ireland, which is the most haunted house in Ireland, apparently. And that is where I put the Powell family uh, living. Uh, but also uh, the fairy folk. Um, when I was a middle school teacher for 15 years in Ireland, I spent a lot of time teaching the mythology of Ireland. So I learned all about, along with my students, the elves, the pixies, the gnomes, and the trolls. And, of course, the oldest story uh, which we had was the story of the naughty boy who tries to capture a leprechaun for its crock of gold. And that is basically the skeleton 
of Artemis Fowl. He is trying to capture a leprechaun uh, for his crock of gold. And what I changed was I gave that leprechaun a lot of technology. So it's not just a normal rustic fairy creature. This uh, leprechaun is actually a captain in the fairy police force. So when <laughs> Artemis grabs hold of this fairy captain, he has uh, angered an entire uh, police force who come to get their captain back. So, but, and so that's where the story takes off. But really, the genesis comes from a thousand-year-old Irish legend. And and you've got nods to those old legends, too, and it, it's just so fun to see. Real quick before I let you go, um, what's your favorite fantasy book not written by Owen Coffer? Oh, I would say The Princess Bride. Uh, I absolutely adore The Princess Bride. And if there was a blueprint of how to make a book into a movie, uh, I think The Princess Bride would be that blueprint because I, I like the movie nearly as much uh, as, I loved, uh, as I've always loved the book. And finally, after people pick up the new edition of the book and watch the movie, uh, where can they find more of your stuff when they get hooked? Yeah, there's everything. We have there's eight Artemis Fowl books. Uh, I have another series called Warp, three books there. There are, three graphic no- there are four graphic novels, Artemis Fowl, one standalone graphic novel. If you go on to owncolfer.com, um, it will just give you a full list and a breakdown uh, of everything I have ever done, which is more than 40 books now. So I'm aiming for 50. That's my goal. And I hope you get there. Owen Coffer is the best-selling author and mastermind himself <laughs> of the Artemis Fowl books. And the first Artemis Fowl movie, first of possibly many, is available to stream right now on Disney+. Plus. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Oh, sweet. Earlier this week, Cole, thinking that this movie would get a sequel. <laughs> it's There was so much hope in that interview. And looking back... I have the utmost sympathy for Owen Coffer having written such a fantastic thing and then to have his name, you know, based on the book by at the front of this just one mm-hmm. in a litany of disappointing <laughs> books turned into movies. Yeah. It'll probably take a few years before somebody's going to take another crack at the franchise and make a movie again. Right. But we do we want to keep things a little bit lighter noted right now and talk about the books that this movie was based on. Sure the movie that we got was a little bit disappointing, but it mm-hmm. doesn't change the fact that the books were still good. And I think the approach that the books had and we briefly mentioned it that was unique. And and Owen you know, gave the the company line of having to make it a little bit more accessible. But the most, the the, the coolest thing about these books that made them different from all the other books mm-hmm. that every other 12-year-old was reading was that Artemis was the bad guy in the first book. And we did not get any shades of that in the first, in this movie. Right. That he was truly a criminal mastermind. It wasn't a story about, you know, this kid whose dad was into fairies. The book was about a kid that was smart enough to know how to capture a fairy or a leprechaun, but was still a kid at heart enough to believe in them where no other adult really did. And you don't get any of that out of the movie. No, no. In fact, what you're explaining to me doesn't even really sound like the movie I saw. <laughs> and and the reason we got some of the, the differences in, in the direction that the movie was going, you know, who's really the main character and whose really story are we supposed to be following, is because the first half of the book is split very evenly between Artemis trying to capture and, and infiltrate the fairy world as mm-hmm. a criminal mastermind brat. Right. And 
the good cop Holly Short that, you know, was just in the wrong place at the <laughs> wrong time and got captured by Artemis and then the rescue op from the character played by Judy Dench in the movie, like the old grizzled cop trying to go after and, and rescue her, you right. know, her, her operative, her, her right. officer out in the field that got captured and Artemis just like subverting him at every turn and being one step ahead. And it's really a cat and mouse game where Artemis Fowl, the guy whose name is on the front of the book, is the the cat. He's the bad guy. He's the one that's keeping the the good guys away. And then he gets a little bit of redemption towards the end of the book, and we kind of see him starting to turn. You know, he's still just a kid. And right. in the movie, his mother is non-existent at all. In the books, it's his mother that's kind of sick. Okay, not the father. This Okay, yeah, so it's not, more of a mother yeah, the father type of thing. Does, okay. He doesn't go away and get captured. He's almost not in the first book at mm-hmm. all. And it's the mother that is home okay. with him and is sick. Fairies do have also this healing ability in the books. And at the end, Artemis exchanges half of the pot of gold that he eventually swindles out of the fairies in exchange for them healing his mom. And we start to see uh. just a little bit of humanity out of this robotic, just bad guy, criminal mastermind okay. Artemis. And that leads us into the second and third where he can you know, slowly begrudgingly work with the fairies for the greater good. And then he can slowly, you know, work and they, him and Holly Short develop a friendship as we go right. along. Really, again, Josh Gad's character doesn't show up until really two thirds of the way mm-hmm. through the book. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he's narrating the movie makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. There's there's these little things that the book does entirely different from what the movie chooses to do. And in adaptation... You can choose to do whatever you want if you have a good reason and if you make a good movie out of it. There's people that will go to see the Harry Potter movies that have never seen – that have never read the books and they'll love things that they changed entirely from the books and that's okay because they ended up being decent adaptations. They were decent movies that that came out of it. Yes. This – was not. Yeah. I – you know, the one you asked me – you asked me before the break – whether if you were Disney Plus, would you even recommend watching this movie? The one thing I can say to parents is, especially if your kids, I'm going to change my answer a little. If your kids are into the books or if they're interested in reading the books, the Artemis Fowl series, I think it can be a great exercise to have them watch the movie and compare. And then how would they make the movie? How would they tell the story? How would they do that? And I think that that's a a great exercise to get kids involved in. So if nothing else, because you can bet even the author himself probably right now is going through that. Boy, if I was in charge of that movie. And I think that's a great creative exercise to go through because this won't be, this is not the first and nor will it be the last Um, horrible movie that got made from a pretty decent book. And that, Rod, is what we want to talk about next on Screen Cleaning. Love movies. You ever talk about a movie with someone that happens to have read the book? They're always so condescending. Ah, the book was much better. (laughs) Oh, really? What I enjoyed about the movie? No reading. (laughs) Yeah. It only took two hours, and then I could take a nap. Welcome back into Screen Cleaning, and today we are talking about 
books turned into movies. Specifically, there's been one that is out today on Disney Plus, Artemis Fowl, that we didn't give an amazing review to the movie, but the book was good. And unfortunately, that's kind of a common theme when it comes to juvenile fiction turned into the big screen. And Rod, mm-hmm. I'm at kind of an advantage to you because the Artemis Fowl book was published in 2001. It's geared towards that juvenile fiction range between fifth and seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And Rod, in 2001, I was between mm-hmm. fifth and seventh grade. And so I read these books. Harry, I was I, I was just was finishing high school, Cole. When I was a kid, <laughs> The Hunger Games were published when I was in high school and into like dystopian, you know, teenagers fighting against the repressive government. Animorphs were books that I read from kindergarten all the way through middle school as well. That that was kind of a, a book release every single month that I would I, I was more excited for than any yeah. movie release of my childhood. And so I, I kind of have the advantage that when we start talking about these books turned into movies, the the wave we've seen recently, they're all based on books that were being released when I was in their wheelhouse. I, I was the age that the books were geared towards and I read as a mm-hmm. kid. And so I I have a familiarity with the source material that when you just go into the movies, yes, yeah, you, you don't. And as and I reviewed films at Parent Previews, blatant plug, ParentPreviews dot com. Check them out. There you go. And I reviewed films there for twenty five years and for other newspapers and outlets. And I found that when you're in the film reviewing cycle, you just don't get time to read the books. You, I, I at least I didn't. Yeah, and, you can. And I'm not much of a book reader. I I love nonfiction. I'm not big into fiction. So well, yeah. And, and once you're an adult, you start to realize, oh, these books written for twelve year olds mm-hmm. really are kind of written for 12-year-olds yeah, to some yeah, degree. Yeah, although they can still certainly be enjoyable. I uh, What I really enjoyed was the fact that there were kids lining up at bookstores to get a hold of a book. And it's funny because I remember in the 1980s and as we came into the 1990s that you know, there was a big concern about whether kids would still want to read books. I mean, there's this new thing called the Internet and computers and everything else. Well, we went through an era of kids loving books, I think, more than kids had ever loved books. But now I'm almost sensing again that that we've kind of rode that wave. And now there's a vacuum again where smartphones and things like TikTok and, and whatnot <laughs> are displacing the time kids have to read. And at first, I think that I agree with you. But then I wonder if it's just because I'm not a 12-year-old yeah, anymore, I don't enough. know what they are reading. Yeah. And so yeah. I assume that these kids nowadays just aren't we, reading. We need so. to infiltrate the junior high crowd and find out what's really going on. Exactly. Are they still reading? Because, I mean, yeah, parents are always concerned about is reading going on. But mm-hmm. when I was when I was in middle school, I was reading a ton. And I would have been the first to tell you, no, yeah. we got so many books and these are all really great. Little did 12-year-old Cole know that the movies that would be made out of these books would almost universally be disappointing. Like I said, Artemis Fowl is just the latest in a long line that includes Aragon, Percy Jackson, where the people that made the movie just have an entirely different vision, whether Mm -hmm. they don't get the source material or if the source material maybe was written to too young of a crowd. So Percy Jackson, for example, is supposed to be in that middle grade range as well, portrayed by just a generic 17, 18-year-old guy going on an adventure as opposed to a kid going to summer camp kind of story that the book was. And Mm -hmm. so that movie really 
didn't get that. Aragon was written by a 13-year-old, for goodness sake. Like, he, he did get what it was like to be a kid and to yes. be in the mind of, like, a boy and his dog, but a boy and his dragon kind of story. And it was very cerebral and, and in his mind and a lot of internal dialogue going on in those books that did not translate at all when they wanted to make the next big fantasy epic movie Yes, that because they didn't know what they were doing. you cannot hand a 13-year-old a $100 million-plus budget and say, okay, now make the movie that goes with your book. And I think that yep. that's, that is the big problem, is the, the creators who turn these into movies, it is very, very difficult as an adult, especially with the pressures of having a major Hollywood film that you are trying to manage and, and work through, to be able to think like a 13-year-old, like an 8-year-old. I mean, imagine Cole. Okay, Cole is, for listeners, Cole, you are what? Probably 25, 30 years younger than me. <laughs> but imagine even for you to go back and write a book that really appeals to 12-year-olds. Oh, no. Yeah. It is very difficult to do. And so I think that's one of the one of the hardest parts about this. I think authors, when you are writing, because let's face it, very few of these books were actually written by 13-year-olds, Aragon's exception. Mm -hmm. But authors, I think you have more time and you have more of the, uh, I don't know what the word is, but you can get in that headspace a little bit early, easier to try and imagine and remember what it's like to be that young. I think, though, having worked in the film and television industry, that is very, very difficult to do when you're dealing with special effects and locations and budgets and, and everything else, it's just not as organic. And expectations creation. are certainly different oh, yeah. too because yeah. your book is a success if you can put it in libraries and just a mm -hmm. bunch of 13-year-olds are reading it. Yeah. A movie is not a success if you can't bring in the whole high school crowd and a bunch of 20-somethings that mm -hmm. look back fondly mm -hmm. on the book and all of their parents and, their and parents. everyone sit yes. down and watching it together. And, and you know, a, a book, t author's time is very, very important, but a book ultimately does not actually have a budget. Yes. So an author can just dream up whatever mm -hmm. they want. Yes. And when they dream up this fairy world underground and That's then Kenneth Branagh yes. has to make a, a you know, uh, be beholden to budgets and CGI and, and things like that to put it on the screen, it doesn't quite get there. Yeah, no, it really doesn't. It's just a totally different creative platform, making a movie versus writing a book. It really is. And, of course, the film industry, too, when they sell these movies and distribute them and try and make money off of them, the narrower the age range that's going to like it, the less money they'll make, the worst, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like there's very rare movies like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, that franchise comes to my mind, where... It, or Wonder. Uh, Those a, are really good examples yeah, yeah. of based on books for mm -hmm. that juvenile mm -hmm. age range that worked. Yeah, they did work, yeah. Although by the time the last Diary of the Wimpy Kid came out, that was a that was just a mess. But the first couple first worked couple. reasonably yeah, well. Yeah. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this. Captain Underpants. That film, for me... <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, as an adult, did I enjoy it? Well, I must admit, I laughed a few times. But it allowed me to remember what I would have thought about it if I was eight years old. And that's the trick. Can they even take an adult back to their childhood and get them laughing at things that they would have laughed at when they were a kid, but now you, you, know, you wouldn't? And there are a few rare ones that do that. So the difference that I noticed there is that 
it's easier to do something that's grounded, that's just kind of about middle school life than trying to make the next sweeping fantasy epic. You're trying to recreate Lord of the Rings every time you turn a book into a movie and no one's been able to do it except for Peter Jackson. And heck, Peter Jackson couldn't even do it when he tried doing The Hobbit in three different movies. That was a disappointment as far as book to movie as well. But what that does make me think of, though, is the process that goes behind turning a novel of 400 or 500 pages down into a movie with like a two-hour runtime. And sure, in The Hobbit's example, turning it into three different pushing three-hour movies with the extended cut didn't exactly do the story a service. But it makes me wonder if there isn't a different way or a better way out there. And I'm going to mention another one of just my least favorite examples of turning books into movies, and that's Percy Jackson again. You can check out The Lightning Thief on Disney Plus right now, but it's because Disney now owns the property and they are in the process of working with author Rick Riordan of making a television series out of that. And uh, and it's not exactly about 12-year-olds, but I think the gold standard and must be at least mentioned in a conversation like this is Game of Thrones. At least for the first three seasons, they were as dang faithful to the source material as you could possibly get every season. Ten episodes was just devoted to one book, and what George R.R. R. Martin wrote down on the page came to life in front of you in a sprawling fantasy kind of way and couldn't have been done in just a movie. Now, Rada, I'm glad that you're sitting across from me for this conversation and not Jeffrey because he doesn't like it when I bring up the fact that the series of Unfortunate Events movie was actually bad. Uh, despite Jim Carrey's, you know, good performance as Count Olaf, that movie was just all over the place and didn't know how to adapt a bunch of short books into just a movie. Well, guess what? Netflix took the source material and with Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf turned it into a real series of unfortunate events, a television series. Finally, just one more example here, Rod. Um, And I mentioned it right at the top of our conversation, but my absolute favorite book series as a kid was Animorphs. And boy, that series was just kind of weird. It was about five kids who ran into an alien one night in an abandoned construction site, and they obtained the ability to turn into animals. And it got a Nickelodeon television show that wasn't really great, but at least it kind of understood the concept. They had kind of a story every week kind of feel to the books because they were short books, and there were 54 of them being churned out once a month when I was a little kid. And I would go to Kmart and probably kept the Little Caesars in business in there because we would pick up a pizza and get the books and go home and read them. But there's 54 of them, right? And so as much as I love this series, I never want to see an Animorphs movie because there's no one book in there that really deserves the movie. And if you start combining them, you're going to get a messy product. So the moral of the rant here is just to consider your source material. Look at the book or books you are trying to wedge into to, to take the square peg and stick it into the round hole of just a big blockbuster movie that can make you tons of box office money. Yeah. So getting into the teen dystopian area, which was just so, I mean, this is faded out now, but that was such a big deal. It was like, you know. Maze Runner, Divergent. Yeah, yeah. It just went on and on. And there were a few others in there, too. And um, 
you know, for me, I, I, I remember going to those films, and there's a couple of them I liked a little more than others, but for the most part, didn't really appreciate the genre because I felt like it, they, they all really relied mostly on one protagonist who knew everything. I also really got tired of the template where the adults are evil and they know nothing. But, I mean, that is part of, I think, what they were trying to sell to teens because, I mean, that's been going on for years where where when we market to teens, I disagree with it personally, but we want teens to feel like, you know, you've got 50-year-old people sitting in the ivory towers selling their media goods to a teenager trying to convince them that the 50-year-old people sitting in the ivory tower are bad guys. Mm -hmm. And then you convince the teen to spend money on this stuff so the 50-year-old in the ivory tower can make money. You know, it's kind of this really malicious little cycle. And I guess I looked at many of these um, teen dystopian movies that came out that way. I'm thinking, yeah, there's a bunch of old people making a movie convincing teens that old people are bad. And and it just comes off to me as not being uh, not being very uh, what's the word I'm looking for sincere is the wrong word. It's but, disingenuous. Yeah, it's disingenuous. It Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Cole. See, you know big words. <laughs> it comes from all that reading I did when <laughs> I was in middle school. Yeah, when you watch movies, you don't get big words. And so that for me was really um, I think I, I sensed that over and over. So. There And to every example, there's a good counterexample. Mm-hmm. I didn't love all of Onward, the newest Pixar movie, and the right. one that didn't quite get a real theatrical release because mm-hmm. of everything that's happened recently, but that also kind of went to Disney Plus earlier than they thought it would. It's another fantasy story. It, it kind of lives in a similar world as Artemis Fowl when all, where all these fairies and centaurs and, and things are around. That movie featured two kids going on an adventure – but their mom was competent and yes. ran into another good, competent adult that yes. were also on an adventure and contributing to the overarching story. And, and you, I think that's yeah. good for kids to see that yeah. not every story has to be us versus I the think big bad so. adults. I think so, too. And frankly, if you're going to go down the Pixar rabbit hole, I, I believe that that is something that Pixar figured out long ago that has allowed them to do extremely well with broad-range audiences. Because when you look at the movies that they have created, their stories do include often caring, competent adults. They also have evil adults who are the antagonists. Um, but they they have that, that supportive mix in there that I think is very appealing to many audiences, even if they don't realize it. It seems like most our conversations about movies for kids that adults can enjoy too ends up getting to Pixar at some point. And yeah, so I'm it really glad, does. I'm glad that's where we came around to as well. Uh, yep. We're going to end our show just like we do every single week with panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. Artemis Fowl isn't the only new release that you can have available in your home, streaming or otherwise, and it's not even the only one with a young protagonist either. Rod Gustafson visits our show often just to give movie reviews. You've been on the show all day today, and I'd be remiss (laughs) if I didn't ask you for a couple movie reviews of things we may have missed before you go. Yeah, you know, I still love trying to find some uh, movie ideas that maybe parents haven't heard of. And especially right now, you're, you've probably been digging around on the streaming services looking for things that you can watch as a family. So I've got a couple. One that's, uh, well, both of these are probably more of a, a middle age range of the first one, probably more like 13 and over. 
And let's start with that. This is a movie called The Vast of Night. It is on Amazon Prime. If you have a Prime subscription, you can watch this for, as Amazon says, free. But let's face it, it's not for really the free. Prime yes. subscription it's a month. in <laughs> your bundle. Yes, in your bundle. And uh, I remember, I'm sure you remember too, the old, and this predates me, Cole. We've been talking a lot about age today. So this came out long before I was on the earth. But the Rod Serling's Twilight Zone series from, oh, yeah. you know, the 1950s. Anyone? that listens to Jeff and I talking on screen cleaning mm-hmm. knows, knows about, about the, the Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. Well, whoever made The Vast of Night, this is a true ode to The Twilight Zone. And this is a movie about um, strange sounds that are happening in this little desert town. I think in, I think it's in New Mexico mm-hmm. where there is a young girl who is just really, she's in her teens and she really um, wants to kind of learn about broadcasting and recording. And this is like tape recorders are new and all of this type of stuff. And so she also knows this guy who in town, he is the late night radio operator kind of DJ guy at the radio station. I wonder what drew you to this movie. I wonder what drew me to this movie. This was my teenage years of going down to the radio station and hoping I'd get a job, etc., (laughs) etc. And that is exactly what she's doing. But there, she is actually a switchboard operator here in the 1950s, which is, there weren't switchboards were starting to fade out, but in a little dusty town like this, they would have still had one. And so she runs the switchboard And she starts getting, she's trying to connect calls late at night one night, and she's getting this weird noise that she can't quite figure out. And then she starts overhearing people talking about something strange in the sky. Mm. And so she, she goes and talks to her buddy at the radio station down the street and, and, and tries to, plays him these sounds. And well, I can't go too much further or else. I could be abducted. But anyway, it's going to be scary for little kids for sure. But for teens, it's a really just a, an appropriate kind of like, ooh, what's going to happen next? But don't worry, no blood in this. There's no, you know, yeah, it's it sounds horror y, mm-hmm. but it's more the just, psychological uh-huh, what's going uh-huh. on horror it as opposed is. to blood and guts it horror. Is. And I was pleasantly surprised. I would say that this film was probably made on a little shoestring budget. But it works really well. So that's called The Vast of Night. You've got another one for us? I do. Another one. This is a little independent film. I love these films. It, and now I'm going to talk about technology really quick. Filmmaking technology, there used to be such a um, – to get a film made was so expensive because you had to shoot it on film and everything else. But now we are – the 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 cost of – price of admission to being able to make a film has come down so much because of the technology. And this little film is called Abe, is in A-B-E. And uh, it's about a little 12-year-old boy. I shouldn't say little. He's not that little. But a 12-year-old boy who his, his uh, mother is Jewish and his father is Muslim. And they live in New York City. His parents are pretty much proclaimed atheists. But his grandparents aren't. And this young man feels he's an only child. He just feels totally caught in the middle. But there's another really cool aspect of this young guy. He loves cooking. He absolutely loves cooking. He reads about it. He watches it on the Internet, anything he can get a hold of. And he loves 
exploring the foods of his ancestors who in these different, very divergent places, plus everything else. So his parents this summer decide to sign him up for a little cooking school at a school down the street. Well, he goes, and this cooking school is talking about, you know, like how to make pancakes and whatnot. Like it's really <laughs> simple, basic stuff. So he goes to this community kitchen in New York City and and kind of talks the guy, the guy that's kind of running the place, really doesn't want this 12-year-old around. But he, after a few weeks of washing the dishes, this kid is so determined he'll do anything there that they start bringing him into this. And this man is from Brazil. And so he brings a whole other collection of tastes and everything. And this movie really is about how all the kind of the food culture comes together to hopefully try and bring their family together and how this this man from Brazil as well kind of um, is part of this. It, for what's happening in our world today, this is a beautiful, beautiful little film. Now, a little heads up again to parents here on this one. There are some serious arguments in this movie where you think, you know, oh, my gosh, this poor kid. But hang in there. It's a movie worth watching, and it's got a bunch of people in it you've probably never heard of or seen on the screen before. But it's a really well-constructed, well-made, well-written film. I was really impressed. You managed to remind me how hungry I am. Before oh, we yeah. Leave yeah, have some food to eat while you're watching Abe, for sure, because you're going to leave hungry. I love when Rod comes by to, to shine a spotlight, an extra spotlight, on some of the movies that don't get the big marketing push that not everyone is aware of. And so thank you for that. And, and Rod, thank you for coming for the whole oh, show this today was, for filling in. This was fun. Happy to be here, Cole. You can catch Screen Cleaning with Jeff and myself, Cole, and a lot of times Rod Gustafson every single Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on BYU Radio or, you know, wherever you get podcasts, whether that's on iTunes or, or the podcast app. Spotify. Stitcher, Spotify, and tune in as well. Just search or just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast. You'll be able to find us. My name's Cole Wissinger. And I'm Rod Gustafson. Have a good week.